haven't taken two weeks off, we're returning to a series called Reclaiming Repentance. And we're only going to have three more sermons, this one and the next two Sundays in this before we wrap it up. We're not going to deal with every instance of repentance exhaustively, but my goal is to hit those passages that may seem like problem passages because sometimes they end up distorting how we view things. Now understand, this is not your typical uh, sermon. It's not. This is more to help encourage you to know that you can study the Bible for yourself. You can actually put pen to paper. You can actually open up the Word of God and spend quality time not just reading. Sometimes when we read the Bible, I don't want to knock that, but sometimes when we read the Bible, we cheat ourselves out of time that we could have studied less and gotten more. And I think it's important to see that we could have done much more with maybe six verses than the fact that we read two chapters in Ezekiel or something like that. The Word of God is, is, is I don't know, bursting forth with things to teach us. And there's a lot of work that the Holy Spirit desires to do in our lives. And so I encourage you, number one, to trust that process. Uh, number two, I'm going to ask you to do something. Is to, why is it coming up like that? That's terrible. This has not worked right. Let me see here. Okay. I'm going to ask you to do something I don't know that any pastor has. I want you to get out your phone. Right? This isn't candle in the wind time. We're not going to do that, okay? Well, then you can't get it out. And if you have downloaded literal word, I'm going to ask you to pull that up and just have it set and ready. We're going to get to it in a little while. Uh, but just have it set for us so that we can go through. In fact, if you want to bring literal word up on your phone, and if you want to go to Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at something there. And so you just go in, uh, type the book at the top, go to Acts, click on 2. And I'm going to ask you to get around verse 37. And then if you would, just click your phone off. Now this is not a time to be playing words with friends. That's important. We don't want to do that. It's all right. We'll work with it. Is there any way we can go to just the large screen view? Okay. Let's just do that. Yeah, let's just do that. I don't know what's coming next. We'll go with it. Okay. But just have that ready. Set it to the side. Maybe put on your do not disturb because we're going to work through that today. Here's the reason why this is an issue. You might say, why are you going on and on about this issue? Well, number one, it's just an example of a word study that you could do. It's just an example. You could pick any word out of. You want an interesting word study and you get alone with God's word? I, I trust that, that everyone in this room, because you're here today, you desire to grow in your relationship with God. You, you desire to cultivate intimacy with God and to go deeper with God. And going deeper with God is not a shortcut process. It never has been. Growing with God takes time. It takes hard work. It takes prayer. It takes investment. It takes everything that makes a robust person in the Lord. He hasn't cheapened the process at all. He wants to lead us through those darker and deeper areas to bring us out brighter on the other side. And sometimes it is something as basic as, man, I'm having a lot of trouble with maybe what this word means. And sitting down with your Bible and some basic study tools in order to get that, of which literal word has been incredibly helpful and it's a very good way to start, especially because it's free. Louis Burkhoff was an old school guy who wrote a systematic theology, brilliant man. 
And he points out something that's very interesting. You might say, well, it's not that big of a deal to me. I promise you it is. Sad to say the church gradually lost sight of the original meaning of metanoia. What is the word metanoia? In the scriptures, it's the word repent. And repentance is how it's used, okay? In Latin theology, Lactanicus, I guess is how you say his name, rendered it this word. You can all read it. Meaning a becoming wise again. What does the word repentance mean? A becoming wise again. As if the word were derived from meta and anoia and denoted a return from madness or folly. Or let's say it this way. From thinking in a way that is completely crooked and slighted and has been spoiled by the world. And coming to your senses about it. So that your mindset can be in alignment with the truth. Your mind being changed to what God has said is the fact of the situation. Now here's the problem, because the translation that came out of this with the rise of the Catholic Church in the 300s AD was, it was called the Latin Vulgate. Some of you might have heard it. It was translated by a guy named Jerome, largely. He didn't have a last name. I don't know if that's like Madonna with no last name, but whatever. Jerome. The majority of Latin writers, however, preferred to render it this word. Now that's a little similar, but not. And what does it do to the meaning of the word? A word that denotes, denotes the sorrow and regret which follows when one has made a mistake or has committed an error of any kind. In other words, this is where the Catholic Church formed their doctrine of penance. And the problem is, is that if you look at this word and what it originally meant, it does not have an emotional connotation attached to it. Could a change of mind evoke emotion? Yes. I went into the game thinking that the Packers were going to win. But at the final buzzer, I came out a little emotional. My mind had been changed by the facts at hand. Right? So that's probably on our prayer list today. Never been scared of the bears before? Still not, but a little concerned now because of last week. Whatever. But in doing that, the facts presented before us are what change our mind. But when someone comes in and says, you know, it might need to be phrased this way. I don't know if you're aware of this, especially if you have some things like systematic theologies or theological word books or even commentaries on your shelf. This is affected literature. This has affected how we're supposed to understand our Bibles. And what's interesting is, is that when you get alone with the Word of God, you find that it doesn't float. Now we're stepping into the word repent and repentance in a Jewish section of the book of Acts. I wanted to ask you to take your physical Bible. Maybe you are just using your electronic Bible, and that's okay. But if you have a physical copy of the Word and turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts is divided up into three sections the first of which is dominated by Peter, the second of which has some transition with Philip in there, and Peter's in there, and then all of a sudden Paul comes in, and then Peter comes in a little bit more, and that, we call that the Samaria section, because the, the uh, persecution of Stephen happens, they spread out a little bit, and then all of a sudden you have just exclusively Paul, from then on out that deals with more of a Gentile type of section. And so we're looking at just the Jewish section of the book of Acts. By the way, if, if your Bible says... The book of the Acts of the Apostles, when you get home, take a little highlighter, and, or sorry, not a highlighter, white out, and white out that bottom part down there, because what this is, the book is actually the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
It's what the Holy Spirit did because the Acts, the book of Acts, is the very well-informed, physician-used outlaying of the promise of the Holy Spirit when Jesus said, I will go to my Father, I will ask of Him, as He has promised, He will give to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the difference maker through all of this. The apostles being involved are just the instruments in the Savior's hands. But it's the Holy Spirit working through them that is the difference maker. So let's get that, that very straight. Let's not let that, that malign us here. Now we've been, I'm going to keep this in front of you and we're going to deal with it because we're going to kind of use this as a help as we go on. Today we're going to be looking at, in particular branches, particular verses, that are going to be dealing with the word repent or repentance, but we're also not going to neglect the fact of the trees, the immediate surroundings, or the context, the immediate context that goes around, because we've got to have a frame of reference and how to understand it. Now this all falls into the forest, which is the theme of the book. How is the Holy Spirit acting amongst people, and what should we notice about that is a, is, a, is a broad umbrella of which we're to interpret everything under. We're not going to necessarily deal with the expanse because that deals with either the Testament as a whole or the Bible as a whole. So here's what you have. You have ten instances. If you're taking notes and you want to write these things down, these are the ones that we're going to cover by and large. We're going to cover eight of these ten that you see here. Uh, the first ones that deal here, is this going to work? Let's see. Ah! I missed you. Okay. This is the Jewish section that we deal with. And about here deals with the Samaritan or Samaria section. And then this and all of this deals with the Gentiles. Now in looking at these, if you notice, I've got two of them that are marked for John's baptism. Acts 19 that we've already dealt with when we were talking about repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and John was baptizing them with the baptism of repentance. Scripture interprets itself from Acts 19. We've got that. And then there's a reference it's made in Acts 13. So we're going to take those and set them aside because one we've explained and the other one is just a passing reference that's going on. But today my goal is that we would knock out these three and take a brief look at all of them. So are we ready to go? Everybody ready? Everybody limbered up and ready to go. <laughs> you guys sound excited. Here we go. All right. Verse 33 of Acts 2. What is the setting? Well, we're familiar with Acts 2, right? We get enamored with it because of tongues. Because we see this massive display of the work of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Jesus had commanded the apostles, you wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then they're going to have power. They're going to be witnesses that are going to go out to everywhere. To Judea, the surrounding area. Sorry, Jerusalem, the current city. Judea, the surrounding area. Samaria, the places where they didn't want to go. And the outer reaches of the earth. The Holy Spirit is the fuel that propels missions forward. Anytime that we pressure evangelize in a situation, I guarantee you that we've already left the Holy Spirit aside. When we're trying to push open a door that the Holy Spirit has not opened for us, we're automatically in troubled waters and are probably better off keeping our mouth shut than saying something in that point. So we've got to rest upon the Holy Spirit, and that's one of the major things we need to take from this. Holy Spirit comes upon them, something that looks like fiery tongues rests upon their heads they all start speaking different actual languages a lot of different jewish people are in town some authentic some proselytes coming in because it's the feast of pentecost and they're going whoa 
They're speaking great things about God, and I'm hearing it in my own language. This is amazing. It's not amazing. They're drunk. And what does Peter do? We're not drunk. Let's have a chat. And he gives a sermon. And he begins to pull from the Old Testament about what the effect of God's presence in the Holy Spirit is going to look like with people. And he walks them briefly through their history and talks about Jesus. And he pops in in verse 33 and he says, Therefore, talking about Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received, now watch this, because this is what we're talking about. It's no coincidence that Act, or sorry, that Luke brings us up in the second chapter to, to help set our minds off, because you've got 26 more chapters to walk through. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. We're not drunk. We're not crazy. We're filled with the Spirit. We're not doing anything fantastical, supernaturally speaking we're doing exactly what we ought to do supernaturally speaking which is by the motivation of the spirit speaking forward the truth he says here and this is kind of piggybacking off of dave's sermon last week for it was not david who ascended into heaven but he himself says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet where he is still to this day waiting to ascend the throne when the father hands that authority over to the Son. Right now, he is in the on-deck box, but he hasn't stepped into the batter's box yet. That's important to understand. Satan is still ruling everything. I hope that's not a surprise, okay? Some of you giggled, whatever. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Now, here's what's interesting about this point that you need to pay attention to. Peter is speaking, but even though we're picking up in the middle of this long sermon, this is the audience. Now, the reason why I didn't give you papers to write on today is because I wanted you to have your phones in your hand. Yes, you heard that correctly. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God, there's the difference maker, has made him, Jesus, both Lord. Now, here's why that's important, because the word Lord in the Greek means the idea of master and Christ. Does anybody remember from the sermon last week what Christ means? Ooh, nobody was paying attention. That's great. Now, what is it? Do we know? Anointed one. That he is the, I could spell, I have a college degree. It's terrible. The anointed one. Or, if you're thinking of it with a Jewish mindset, the Messiah. Christ, this Jesus, whom you, right, There it is. Turn the knife. Whom you crucified. It's your fault. We don't like sermons like that. Peter's a good preacher because he doesn't care. Notice what he says here. Watch this. Now when they heard this, God brought Jesus when you came in contact with him, you killed him. Think about it. Out of everything that Jesus did, murder was the conclusion? How should we handle this? You know what? Death is probably option number one. Who said that? Good grief. That's how you handle a man who never did anything wrong? 
But isn't that what happens when conviction hits the heart? Now watch this. When they heard about all this going down, they were... Get out your phone. Get out your phone. They were pierced. Now if you notice on your phone here, you've got what? Anybody see it? If you got the app, what do you got on there? What's it say on pierced? Got a what? Somebody talk to me, man. There's a lot of people here talk. A number one. Now do this. Take your finger. Just tap it. The whole verse highlights, and it gives you a box at the bottom full of information. And you go down there. Or wounded in conscience. It's giving you the little, the little side tab notes for you. Wounded in conscience, which has to deal with what? Here it is. In fact, it's beyond the brain. The mind has been smitten. In fact, if you, if you go down there and you X out your little information box and you tap on pierced, there you go. You tap on pierced. You have the word, kata nuso. And notice up at the top, the little oval part. Notice that it says, found one verse. This is the only time it ever occurs in the New Testament. It's what's called a hapax legomena for all you Jeopardy players out there. Okay? And it means this is the only time the word comes up. So it's, it's, it's nice because you don't have all this information to filter through. It's difficult because you don't have any other context or passage to compare it to. But if you scroll down there and you look, it gives you three definitions. To strike or to prick violently. This is why I'm saying turning the knife in there about the personal culpability for crucifying Messiah. Notice verse 2, to stun. Number 3, of strong emotion. To be smitten. I would guess that all three of these things happen in this moment. Now if you're someone who has some books to refer to, or maybe you did some digging on Bible.org or something, and you're, you're trying to get into this a little bit deeper, because it's interesting that you have uh, this word that's only mentioned one time. This word has been phrased by, number one up front, kata is a preposition in the Greek language. And essentially how you understand that is anywhere a mouse can go. Up, over, across, through, that type of thing. Okay, When you deal with that, the word kata actually means down. But the word nuso is very interesting. There's a guy named Marvin Vincent. Nerdy guy. But boy, he hit the heart of this. He says, to prick with a sharp point. Homer, everybody know Homer who wrote the Iliad, Greek poet? He actually used this word when speaking of horses galloping across the ground and how their hooves would dent the earth every time they smacked into it. This is the imagery that he wanted to paint for us. He also used it as a spear that punctures or something that's going to penetrate the human body. Now you put flesh on this type of idea of them hearing this, and it gets them. Now I don't know about you, but it seems to me that a solid conviction over just hearing about the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the personal culpability that their sin played in enacting all this, if that's your response, you've just believed. If that's the case to where you were pierced to the heart, Notice what they say. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now that's a good old works question. 
But I'll tell you this, I think they've already crossed the threshold of faith. But you're not looking to make reparations on a situation that you have no conviction about. Now, of course, they can't do anything to pay back the Savior. I don't think that's what we're talking about. But here's what I love. Peter gives them an answer. What is the answer? Peter said to them, here it is. Repent. Pause. Weren't they already pierced to the heart in 37? Yes? Didn't that happen? Isn't that what it tells us? Doesn't it seem pretty solid that this is a stunning moment? I would agree that it is. So notice this is post-conversion. Now that you've believed what I've told you and it struck you, that their direct actions and our sin that we create willingly are multiple offenses against God, have nailed Him to the cross and cost Him His life, your mind has got to get changed. Notice He's not telling them, get emotional. Start thinking differently. You came to Pentecost to uphold the law and to promote and participate in a feast. Now start thinking about the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Get it different. And notice what he says. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Got a problem here. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for sound, loving, biblical, gentle people in this church. Because when I first got here, I taught this wrong. And Lori Colwalk and Chuck Ness corrected me. Praise Jesus. I have not thought about this passage the same way since then and have done more study on it and I have repented of my previous view the word for messes us up why because if I'm reading this just plain Jane as it is it seems to say that unless you're baptized your sins can't be forgiven and so that's when you got to get into literal word or anything else and look a little bit deeper a quote I found by my favorite pastor Earl Rodmacher says the critical word in this phrase is the word for which may also be translated with a view to. A comparison of Peter's message in Acts 10 makes it clear that remission of sins comes to whoever believes. Believers are baptized in view of God's work of forgiveness, not in order to receive that forgiveness. And why is that? Because if baptism is necessary for you to receive forgiveness of sins, you are a co-savior with Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm not that good at it. I'm not going to stay on that cross. Only Jesus stayed on that cross. Only he declared that it was finished. So understanding that this word, for, has various meanings when it was written by the original author is what puts us in the right mindset of being able to keep salvation free. What was the command of them? Having been converted, they needed to now change their thinking and move forward in obedience to be baptized because all of their sins had been expunged from the record. That's the first use that we see connecting with the Jews here. Now turn with me over to chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Look at verse 13. And if you have any questions about anything that we go over, understand I'm available after we're done here. I'm also available through email. My email's on the back of the bulletin. Feel free to give me an email or whatever. Or if you want to give a call, that's great. Look at Acts 3, starting in verse 13. Let me set the stage. 
What is the tree surrounding this? Well, there's a, there's a beggar at the gate. And as Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray, they come by, he asks for money, and he says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he got up and walked and decided he'd walk right into the temple with them. And so they're hanging out on Solomon's portico, which is the outer edge around there. People are flocking over because they recognize who the person is and they want to extol them. And Peter's like, hold the phone. This ain't about the apostles. This is about the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's work in this man's life. And look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He takes these Jewish people back to the critical moment when God made a covenant with Abraham alone and perpetuated it through Isaac and Jacob. So that would be fresh on their mind of his point of reference, okay? So if we were going to do this, we would write in there Genesis 12, 1 through 3 to start us off, okay? The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered. Man, Peter just can't stop turning that knife, can he? He just can't. That you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. What would have happened if they let Jesus go? Oh, man. Can you imagine having no hope? Can you imagine recognizing that your sins are all that you have? That your sin is as good as it gets. See, the mercy of God is thick in the midst of a tragedy. Notice in 14 and 15, but you disowned the holy and righteous one. Here, we underline that. You. Here's the interesting thing about this is this is plural. Every time he's saying you in this passage, it's plural. You disowned him the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Same, plural. But, put to death. Now, interesting word here. Pay attention to this. It's fitting that we're using purple. The Prince of Life. The One whom God raised from the dead. So notice here. Crucifixion. Resurrection. A fact to which we are witnesses. The prince of life. Pull out, literal word. You can go over to the next chapter there just by Xing out of your information box. Go over to the next. Scroll down until you come to verses 14 and 15. Find the word prince of life. Notice that it's got a little one next to it. You stick on it, and it's brought up some information. The author. The author. You get out of that, you put your finger on the word particular. The reason is, is because it's archigos. And whenever time you're dealing with the word arche, you're dealing with in Greek, the idea of time, but especially within reference, it could be, depending on the context, the beginning. He's the beginner is what he is. He is the author of all time and life. Notice it says beginning or originating. The idea of the founder or the author there. He is the prince of life that they killed but was raised from the dead, and of which these men are now witnesses. So notice, just as in 2, Peter was speaking. In 3, we have Peter speaking. Just as in 2, the audience was Jewish. Now in 3, the audience is Jewish. And on the basis of, what is it, church? Faith. Only one person knows it. Was that you, Terry? Did you say faith? You should have. Okay, that's good. On the basis of faith in his name, 
It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of... No. Y'all. Mark it out. Yeah. Kentucky translation. There you go. Y'all. Notice. And now brethren. Now real quick. This word here is not brethren like we're all part of the church brothers and sisters. This is ethnic brother, brethren. Brotherhood. How do you know that? Because they're not saved. They're not redeemed people. Peter is preaching to them about something. But watch his subject matter about the prince of life and what has happened at their hands. Brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Now, pause for a second. I want to take you on a journey that I didn't plan. Turn over to 1 Corinthians here in your Bible. Just go over real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit brings it to mind. I'm going to to trust it. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. This is Paul speaking to them. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit... Notice there again, and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. For those who are mature in the faith, there is deeper knowledge to be had. And those are the ones who are ready to receive wisdom. Look what he says. A wisdom, however, now watch this, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Notice they're temporal. It's talking about the earthly rulers. Now watch what he says here. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The mystery which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Turn back to Acts. These rulers who operated In ignorance, notice, you acted like that, your rulers acted like that. If they would have known more about the situation, they would have said, don't put your hands on the Son of God. Who wants to have his blood directly on their hands? If they would have known, he never would have died for the people. So it was something that was kept from them, from their understanding. You say, well, did God keep it from them? Read the record. It seems like they really wanted to press on and keeping it from themselves. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He's a blasphemer. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, what is that? That's OT. That is Christ would suffer. He has thus fulfilled the suffering of Christ prophesied in the Old Testament is done. It is fulfilled prophecy now we come to our branch therefore because of that fact repent and return pause everybody know what that means they're not the same thing repent and return are not the same things not only is there emotional connotation that is usually thrust upon the meaning of repentance, like we saw from our quote earlier, and I kept you from this quote just because I didn't want this sermon to go too long and lose everybody. But there are also quote upon quote upon quote 
that I could bring forward to you where people have said, it is a turning, it is a turning, it is a turning. Repentance is not a turning. It's a becoming wise again. It's a change of the mind. It is a return from fallacious thinking. Is that right? Did I use that word correctly? Great. He liked it. It passes. And coming back into a sobriety. It is the son who went wayward coming to his senses. That's what it is. But notice here, you've got two different things. One, change your mind. Two, return. What should we do about this, Jeremy? It's a dilemma. Ding, ding, ding. There we go. Bring up literal word. Go down through there. Notice you have a 19. Therefore, repent. You put your finger on there. Comes up. Metanoeo. And if you scroll down just a little bit in that information box to change one's mind or purpose, hence, to repent. Hey, they got it right. I love it. Now, take your finger. You don't even have to X out of that. Take your finger and touch upon the return word. Here's an important word you need to know, especially for the book of Acts. And I want to show you why briefly. I want to help you use this tool and get comfortable with it so in your own Bible study you can do it. It is the word epistrepho. That word means to turn, to turn back, or to return. Okay? It's very good. Notice, to turn about, to turn rounds, or to turn round, to turn towards, to cause to. And here's the interesting thing. Every time it is mentioned in the book of Acts, it is always a turning toward God. Every time. Is it wrong for the Christian to say, you need to turn to God? No. Because the way you turn to him is faith. And that's exactly what the Bible says. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Notice up there in the top you've got found in 35 verses. Let's all go on a little electronic adventure together. Click on that and you have a screen that pops up. And you have the Gospel and Acts, the Pauline Epistles, and the General Epistles. Click on Gospels and Acts and go down to Acts. You've got 11 instances and click on that. Notice that in 319, this is the first time that epistrepho comes up to be used. And you scroll down through there and you see we have a returning. Returning to what? How should we understand that? Go down to 935 and all who lived and Lida and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Here's how it's used there. Now it's meant turning in various instances, but any time that a salvific idea, salvation idea is on the table, it's always a turning to the Lord. And you can easily check every reference down there. It is like beautiful gold at your fingertips. Does everybody see this? Am I the only person excited about this? It's a great tool to use. I use something else. Don't pee-pee on our parade. We're having a good time. All right. So notice here. Therefore, repent and return. Not the same thing. Why? Here's the reason. So that your sins may be wiped away. In order that, watch this, loaded language. Times of refreshing may come. How? From the presence of the Lord. And this is God. Why? That He may send Jesus, right? And here's our anointed one language. Appointed for you. Pause for just a second. Somebody tell me, what's he saying? He's not saying, hey everybody, let's go to heaven when we die, is he? He's not. What is he saying? Remember, his audience is Jewish. What have we learned about this whole idea of repentance before? Times of refreshing may come. I'm so refreshed in the Holy Spirit. That's not what it's talking about. Okay? And here's the reason why you know. is because he's given you specific criteria for how it happens. The presence of God is going to show up. And he is going to give a 
Sending. Sending of who? Jesus. Who said that? I want to take you to Culver's. Thank you. See? You answer right. You get something. All right. Notice. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. There's your timing language. Of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. He's not talking about heaven here. The only mention of heaven is where Jesus is right now. But notice because it's plural you. Because he's telling them they need to repent and return. Return where? Return to their God. Think correctly about your God and return to your God because you killed his anointed one. Get pierced with that. What will happen? Times of refreshing. The presence of God himself will show up and he will send Jesus back. He's talking about the kingdom, guys. He's not just talking about if you believe this, you're going to heaven. Sin's taken care of? Absolutely. But notice that's brought in and it goes to a much broader spectrum of how to understand it. This is where Peter goes with them. Why? Because that is the culmination. Heaven, good thing. Yes. Kingdom, guys, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the kingdom. We're going to spend about seven years in heaven. Okay? There'll be a judgment seat of Christ, a nice feast that goes on. But then our champion returns. And it's kingdom time from that moment on. That's what we look forward to. So notice here, when we're dealing with the idea of, sorry, repentance, it's not the same as returning. We're dealing with the idea of kingdom language to the Jewish people because at this time, the offer of the kingdom is still on the table. Schofield. Schofield writes, the appeal here is national to the Jewish people. As such, not individual as in Peter's first sermon, what we saw before. There, those were pricked in the heart, were exhorted to save themselves from among the untoward nation. Do we live in an untoward nation? That's good language nobody uses anymore. Here the whole people is addressed. And the promise to national repentance is national deliverance. And he shall send Jesus Christ to bring in the times which the prophets had foretold. What did they tell about? We're not talking about his first coming, guys. We're talking about his second. And that is the kingdom. How about our last example here? Or I'm sorry, this is important. Uh, verse 21, let's look at this real quick. Everybody see this word, restoration? Restoration used right here is the noun form of what Luke decided to use right here in Acts 1.6. You don't have to turn there. As the verb form. And what is it? It's the question by the apostles. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Biblical writers use common words when the subject matter is the same because they're trying to link it in mind for us, the readers, to know what they're talking about. Just a little aside. I won't charge you extra for that. Let's go to Acts 5. Turn over to that. Acts chapter 5. Boy, this is a saucy scene. This is a good time. Because you find that all of a sudden the high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they are turned up. They are all up in arms. I thought we dealt with this blasphemer. I thought we crucified him and, and dealt with him. And even though we can't find his body now, why should we still be persisting with this? Well, they decide that they're going to take Peter and John. Notice that Peter's present again. You're dealing with the Sanhedrin. You're dealing with the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You're dealing with Jewish entities. The audience is still Jewish. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. When they brought them, they stood before 
the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And we think the victim mentality in our culture today is bad. You're trying to say it's we're, we're at fault. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I bet Peter was like, yes. I would have loved to have seen it. That's good. You know, you like holding your popcorn just to wait. Yeah. Okay, so anyway. But notice, you bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. But Peter... Here's our, here's our guy, our, our speaker. And the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. You want a mantra for today? Here it is. Memorize it, saturate on it, embrace it, use it. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. When you, <laughs> whom you, gosh, that's just so good, right? That's a terrible knife, but there it is. Here, and I'll put a compass there where it looks like Rambo. There you go. All right. You have put to death by hanging him on a cross. Look where he goes. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand. Remember the position we talked about. He's there today waiting to assume the throne. Presently, Satan is the ruler of this world. He says here, as a, number one, prince, number two, savior. What kind of language is prince? Is prince salvation language or is it kingdom language it's kingdom language what is savior kingdom or salvation language ah notice to grant repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins does everybody see how this lines up he's prince and savior what was the call to Israel at the beginning of the Gospels? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everybody remember that? The message is still the same. Why? Because the offer of the kingdom is still on the table for them, even though they killed Christ, even though they buried him, even though he showed himself to be triumphant over sin and death and the grave, even though he has ascended now, was no longer there, and the Holy Spirit had now come, and by miraculous works was testifying to the truth of who he was still a witness even though he's not physically there notice this and we are witnesses of these things and so the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey him but when they heard this they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them now that's getting cut in a different way that wasn't pierced to the heart what must we do this was a stop convicting me i will kill you think about this because it's an important principle and sometimes we deal with this whenever we're witnessing to people. Sometimes we think when we put the Word of God out there, we're expecting a favorable return. Not all the times. Recognize this. When you put the Word of God out, it gets one of two responses. It either softens a heart or it hardens a heart. It never lies there with nothing. There's always a reaction. And if you don't see it, the person is an excellent actor. Concealing that. Because there's something about the idea that because I can't stop lying, it nailed a man to a cross who is God, but had to go to the cross in order to save me from the fact I can't resist lying. That's intense. And it causes you to have to do something with it. So what was the call to them? 
repent. Why is that? Repentance is what needs to happen because we're still dealing in kingdom language. Now again, I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't have some sort of amazing application to pull from this because we're doing some word studies and we're gathering information over time to just give us clarity. This is what it is to study the Bible and to do the hard work together through it. So, with that being said, what do we learn about repent and repentance in the Jewish sections of Acts, or the one section here between verses 1 and 7? Here are three observations we found. Number one, repent can be a post-conversion call to change one's mind. How do we know that? Because if they were pierced at the heart, I don't think that's used flippantly, especially the only time it's ever used. It's almost like somebody had to come up with a word. Strategery. We had to come up with something in order to make that happen. Some of you from the 90s understand that joke. Okay. Repent can be a post-conversion call to change one's mind. Number two, our Acts 3 section, changing one's mind is separate from turning back to something. It's not the same thing. In fact, I would say the fact that you are going to turn to something is because you've already decided to do it. The only people that turn to do something and don't know why they're there are because they forgot why they decided to do that, yes? And some of you are like, no application, that just pierced me to the heart. <laughs> You ever done that? You walk in a room and you're like, yeah, why am I here? Well, you had a change of mind to begin with that led you there. Because you can't retain it, I can't help that. But the mind was changed before you walked, okay? Then the last one here. God granting repentance to Israel coincides with Jesus' role as the prince sitting at the right hand of God. At that point in time, and it wouldn't last very much longer. We're going to see that next week. At that point in time, the offer of the millennial kingdom was still on the table for the Jews. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we can gather together, open your word, look at something like just a word and how it's used in different passages, but also see the miraculous and incredible work and love and movement of the Holy Spirit in time and history. Thank you, God, that you've not left us ignorant. Thank you, Lord, that the circumstances were as such that even though the cross is an incredible tragedy, it is an astounding object of love to be embraced. All according to your timing. All according to your will. All to demonstrate the salvation that is available to the world. Thank you, God, that you've given us minds to think. Thank you that you've given us electronic devices that actually encourage us to get into the Word and dig a little bit deeper. And I pray, God, that this would help us to get alone, to actually practice a moment of solitude should we be able to find it in this world. And to just come to the Word of God with a heart ready to grow and a mind ready to be stretched and a life ready to be abundantly lived. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.